and welcome to Enroute, a journey of faith and modern life. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Well, if you know anything about economics, it has to be about the concept of scarcity. This is the concept where you're dealing with a gap, a gap between a limited resource and unlimited wants. Scarcity means making decisions on how to best allocate these resources efficiently so that as many people benefit as possible. That's basically what scarcity is all about. It's Econ 101. But when I got to seminary and afterwards, I would hear pastors say over and over again that scarcity was bad. They would say things like God is a God of abundance and that scarcity was about greed and about not sharing resources with others. I never understood where other pastors were getting this. I knew about this basic fact of economics. So why were they coming up with this alternative viewpoint? What I learned over time was that this sort of thinking was pretty standard throughout mainline Protestantism. My guest today thinks that way too many clergy in mainline Protestantism are somewhat ignorant when it comes to economics in the same way that sometimes evangelicals are ignorant when it comes to science. Why is that? The economist I have uh, today is Michael Cruz, and I think he's made it his work over the last few years or so to really help Christians in mainline churches really understand how economics really works. He's used his blog, Cruise Chronicle, to help allow people of faith to really understand economics and, and how it can be used that is beneficial and that goes coincides with one's faith. So today I'm going to, Michael and I are going to be chatting about economics, business, and the mainline Protestant church. We will also be talking a little bit about evangelicals and why it seems sometimes among within evangelicalism there is such a, a hard time of people understanding structural racism. I've really been looking forward to this episode, so I hope that this is going to be an experience where you will gain some knowledge, especially on such an important topic. Here's Michael Cruz. Good to talk to you, Mike. Yes, good to see you, Dennis. Well, the first thing that I wanted to um, bring about was to talk a little bit about um, the concept of scarcity. Um, Mm. That was, to me, kind of basic economics that I learned in high school and later in college. Um, And I've noticed over the years when I was in... um, seminary, but even not just in seminary, but in other places, how much scarcity seemed to be a bad thing. And to me, I didn't make any sense because that was kind of the basic understanding of what economics was all about. It's kind of like saying oxygen is bad. 
Um, <laughs> so, can you kind of explain or kind of bring about kind of what has been the issue concerning scarcity, and what does it actually mean in economics when we talk about scarcity? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I back up and say a little bit from from a theological standpoint when I hear. Uh, the corporate prayers on Sunday, or I see various pastors or theologians writing, they talk about needing to live out of a spirit of abundance, not a spirit of scarcity. And that uh, economists and business people will tell you that you need to live your life out of a, 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 a feeling of scarcity, that there's always want, there's always need, but we need to resist that and embrace abundance. And so that's the theological perspective that's there. And there, there is a strong element of truth in that, and that our trust is to be in God, and that we are to trust God for, for provision. And, and that, I guess the question then is, the assumption seems to be there that the abundance pre-exists, and all that has to be done is for it to be redistributed, to, to appropriate, appropriately distributed, so that people do not experience scarcity. That often seems to be the underlying a thought between, behind the theologian that I hear talking. Is that true? Is, is there an abundance? And so what I, the way I would look at this is if you look around almost anything in your office or anything around you, almost everything that you see did not exist the way you are using it. It does not exist the way it existed in nature. Somebody had to harvest something. They had to um, gather goods and combine them together and take them from less useful forms and put them in more useful forms in order for us to be able to use those things, which means there's human labor. And if you look around your office, there's almost nothing there that exists the way that it exists in nature, which means that abundance of things that you have was created by human action, by human interaction. So if you're talking about abundance in terms of the things that we actually use in everyday life, there's a near absolute scarcity of everything. Human labor somehow has to transform that into more useful forms. And so then the question is, how does that happen? How does that occur? And what are the just ways for that occur? What are the most uh, beneficial ways for, for that to occur? Those are the questions that I think we get into. All economics is, is saying is making the obvious, rather obvious thing, if you think about it for a second, Virtually nothing we use exists in nature. And so therefore, things have to be fabricated and transformed into more useful forms. And so how do you do human beings? How does society do that? And what are the options based on whatever values we're bringing to the table? Which are the, the better options in terms of how to create that abundance? So economics actually is about abundance. It's about how does abundance occur? How do you create it? Um, but my experience has been that in broad swaths of the church, that there is um, a lot of antagonism or at least ambivalence towards economics, towards uh, business, towards that productive capacity. I could give some thoughts as to why I think some of that exists. Well, I, I, and I think that that's important to ask because I don't, yeah. Yeah. you know, we would never kind of, well, especially these days, we talk a lot about trusting the science or talking about the importance yeah. of science. And right. but it seems like sometimes in, in in at least in mainline churches, it's like we don't trust economics and, and right. kind of the basic 
system of how we dole out resources. And so, yeah. I mean, I guess why is that? What, what is the the what is the antag what's behind all the antagonism? Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't know that I have the solid answer or the one solid answer to that, but just a couple of thoughts. I think one of the things that is a challenge <laughs> is that through most of human history, economics was pretty much a fairly narrow zero-sum game. The way I benefit and the way I get wealthier is somebody else gets less wealthy. So the, the wealth is, is um, it's minimal and there's barely enough to go around. But through most of humanity, the overwhelming majority of humanity lived at barely at subsistence level. Um, and so you were just struggling to survive through your entire life just above subsistence. And so somebody become wealthy, the only two ways that you became wealthy was because you had land or because you had labor. And labor, you can't really increase the productivity over a certain level, and there's marginal differences you can make. Land, can only you can only make it so productive. So if those are your only two inputs in terms of creating wealth, then it's a relatively fixed sum game. And so when we look at ancient writers, which includes the, the writers of scripture and, and how they're looking at thing, things, the, the issue is almost never about production per se. It's about distribution because it is that relatively fixed sum game. And so biblical ethics, and I think the church, early church coming forward up until the recent couple of centuries, that was the world. That, that was the way things were. But in the past 200 years or so, through combinations of specialization of labor, through trade, and particularly using power to increase production, machine power, and then the, the energy that powers those machines, we have been able to radically alter the ability to produce things. And so that creates this tremendous abundance in which a broad, first it began in the West and it's began to, span, uh, to expand to other parts of the world, in which a great many people, if not the whole world, can by historic standards, can participate in abundance. They can, they can have that wealth. Now there's serious issues, consequences, environmental issues. There's questions about climate change. There's, I mean, there's, there's all those kind of issues. So all of that has to be processed through an ethical framework. But I think what's different is, is that so much of the whole history and the weight of the church was fashioned in this fixed sum world that existed. And it seems to me that the church still has a hard time coming to grips and grappling with how the world has changed in the past couple hundred years. I find very, very few theologians who have ever even had a class in economics, much less developed a competency in, in you know, knowing what it is. And it usually what they have developed often tends to be just enough to be able to say things to sort of reinforce the pejorative <laughs> that they have of economics in the first place. Um, so there is a real need for us to think theologically about this new world that we live in. And it just seems to me that there is a dearth of that, that much of the church tends to be driven by, on the one side, sort of a very strong, uh, at least in the United States, sort of this Christian nationalist uh, gung-ho, everything America is great, so therefore capitalism is wonderful, and our business people are, are the best and the most wonderful in the world, and nobody should criticize them. Or the other side is sort of the social justice side of things, and Capitalism is exploitive. It's that's all that it is, and needs to be done away with. And we need socialism. And we, you know, 
And it just tends to follow, the church to me seems to follow two very popular strings. And I find, unfortunately, depressingly, uh, only small pockets in the church, it seemed to me, that really try to struggle with wrestling about this issue of economics and, um, and faith. And let me, let me also add to this, to me, because I don't want to sound like this is all coming down on one side. Economics does have problems. <laughs> the, oh, yeah. the, the discipline of economics has issues. So I don't mean to hold them up as the paragon or the final authority on truth and morality. Going back nearly 100 years with, with Keynes and um, this idea that of homo economicus, that human beings are just uh, economic calculating machines. And um, basically, uh, I think a lot of economics has tended to drive out the sense that people find meaning in their work apart from the material value and the benefit that it brings to them materially. And that that is often ignored uh, as part of the economic calculus, the economic equation. And uh, so that needs to be reflected upon as well. I don't want to make this just a one-sided story that it's all the theologians and the church's problem. It's, it's, there's problems on both sides of the street, but you cannot, in my estimation, do theology about the broader world, about the economic issues in the world without having the tools to be able to evaluate those broad economic structures, to be able to look at those numbers, to discern what they mean and don't mean, them, and uh, be able to process that. And that's where the discussion is broken down. It seems to me that there's very little productive discussion in that area. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds to me that if we're going to, and, and there are issues concerning economics, you know, there are issues concerning, you know, labor, um, and as you talked about in environmental issues, right? But it, you can't really have a good discussion on that if you don't have some uh, some understanding of economics, and, right? And especially, it seems in some ways the church is about two hundred years behind, <laughs> and that we haven't feels- really figured out how to talk about the economy today, as opposed to what economy economies were like for most of human history until maybe two or three centuries ago. Right, yeah, I, I think that's true. And, and, and I, from a personal perspective, in terms of comparisons, I know that a lot of people in more progressive churches get exasperated with more conservative Christians on issues like evolution. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, you know, the Bible doesn't talk, that's not what the first chapters of Genesis are about. They're not about evolution. They uh, are not about origins per se, and um, they don't trust the scientists in terms of what's being said there. They just dismiss them out of hand. They hear conservative people say, well, the scientists are all materialists, so why should we believe what they're saying anyway? And uh, we're, uh, We believe the Bible, that type of thing. So they get really frustrated, irritated with these conservative Christians, and they often will bring proof texts, these conservative Christian proof texts to prove these things that the world was created in six days, so on and so forth. Well, for me, what I know about economics in the progressive world, it almost feels like exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's the, the proof texting from scripture, these things against capitalism or against, you know, market trade and um, looking, you know, well, the people in Acts, they all, you know, sold all their goods and they lived together in common. You know, just taking these little snippets and stories and putting them uh, as proof texts. Uh, against whatever it is that you don't like. And why don't they believe what's being said by economists? Well, those economists, they're all evil materialists. 
so we can't believe what they're saying. And it's the same thing that conservatives say about scientists when they're talking about evolution. Um, so there needs to be that conversation, it, not a capitulation, a conversation <laughs> between the, the two uh, streams of thought. I think mm. that that's the issue, yeah. I hate bringing this up because it, I know it gets so, it's gonna be used or it makes me sound like I'm a crank in some ways, but what influence is Marxism have with how people look at economics, especially within progressive churches? And you know, I, I am hesitant to bring that up because that's yeah. such an easy go-to answer, especially yeah. from a conservative side, but it, it seems like some of what we're talking about sounds like Marxism, but mm -hmm. I don't, I, I'm not certain. Yeah. Well, my thoughts on that are, and this goes back to my studies in sociology. In sociology, they talk about there's these large macro theories of how society works. And the two big sort of schools of thought in sociology sort of go in two different directions. One was called functionalism. Mm -hmm. And functionalism tries to look at how all the various pieces of society all fit together and interlock and, and support each other and how it keeps society stable and keeps it perpetuating and keeps it running. And that's really fine, except many of those theories have a hard difficulty explaining about why disruption occurs, about why um, conflict develops, that type of a thing. So, so where does that come from? They often have difficulty explaining it. The other school of thought is often what's called conflict theory. And conflict theory comes from Marxian ideas, the idea that there tend to be uh, groups of people in society, classes, whatever you want to call them, that have vested interests, who have interlocking vested interests, who then seek to perpetuate their power relative to other people's power in, in society. And so you can look at how society is structured because you, by looking at these competing groups, they're in conflict with each other. And so you can analyze it and you can see why conflict continually is developed while there's constant disruption. But the downside of that one is so how is the societies able to keep perpetuating themselves over time? How is it that they manage to keep order, you know, that they, they actually survive and thrive over time? And so both of those two theories have merit in the way that they come at things, but either one by themselves ends up having problems with trying to explain the whole situation. Mm -hmm. And so the, and I wouldn't call it Marxist. My, my language would be Marxian. It's Marxian okay. thinking. Uh, Marxists, to me, I tend to think of Karl Marx and Lenin and revolutions and communism and all that type of stuff. But Marxian thinking is more generically the idea of seeing world as competing power groups, competing interest groups, competing with each other, and how they jockey back and forth in order to get power or to take power. And that's a legitimate lens through which to view how society works. And so the progressive wing of the church tends to rely, I think, more heavily on that sort of Marxian view of things, liberation theology and you know, all the various topics. And there's merit in those, but I'm not, not diminishing those. But that alone, without a larger vision for how society should be incorporated, how it should work, um, tends to be a rather weak view of being able to shape the world. And, that's, and the conservative side of that is, again, just this thing. We can't have critical race theory and we can't talk about historic racism and we can't, you know, 
all those type of stuff because racism is just what individuals do. Well, they want to make everything about the fact that you know the world is all orderly, that it all works together, and these are just minor nuisances and annoyances off to the side that don't have a central role in how society plays. And so somewhere between those two extremes, I think is where the truth is. And it's a matter of being able to hold those two in tandem. Uh, and with critical race theory, which is sort of a subsection of what I would call you know, conflict theory, critical theory. Um, I, I like somebody recently said, critical race theory is not a noun, it's a verb. It is a it is a way of looking at something. It's a lens through which to view things. It's not a particular set of truths that, that are hanging together about a particular topic. It's a lens through which you use to look at something. And as long as that is taken as a lens, an important lens, not the only lens, I think there's truth to be learned through that. And so I think that that's, uh, the progressive church has a contribution to make in terms of, of helping us understand how the world is there. But uh, I think it's Scott McKnight who always used the phrase, it's true, but it's not true enough. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, that's the way I frame it, yeah. So how do you improve things? How do you, you know, one of the things I'm always fascinated with is, um, again, going back to kind of the science is, you know, interviews I've seen about uh, with Francis Collins, who is the outgoing head of the NIH, National right. Institutes of Health, um, who is uh, a devout evangelical Christian. And he talks a lot about his faith and science and how those two can go together. Do we have any kind of a, any type of equivalent with economics, mm -hmm. economists yeah. that are, you know, very much economists, but then also talk about their faith as well? Yeah. I have found very few people in my, in, over my years that I would say are um, truly competent in both spheres, in theology and economics. There have been some theologians that I have read, have written some books about economics, which I think are very helpful. I, I think they're very insightful, but they aren't truly economists in, in the true sense of that word. There is, um, trying to think of, do I have, oh, trying to see. Yeah, Paul Hein, H-E-Y-N-E, -E, is uh, somebody that I recommend people read. Now, he died about 20 years ago, but he was a uh, theologian who also had a degree in economics. Hmm. And uh, he, he has some very interesting writing uh, and, and reflecting on those. And I think he even wrote an economics textbook uh, that was used at college level. Uh, so, I mean, he's he was very well uh, versed in, in both those topics. There, Daniel Finn is, a, I think, I think he's Catholic, uh, but he, I think, has written some very good books about uh, how we think about markets and 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 the the philosophy behind that, the thinking of it. And so, there's there are a number of different angles on which to to do this. But my experience has been, it's it really is like you have to hunt these people down. Hmm. There, I know that there's a Christian Economics Association. Uh, that are economists, that are Christians, that get together and they have these conferences, and I see these small networks. But is there a uh, to the degree that we have Christians that are scientists that have a form associations that that are having an impact on the culture? 
I do not see that in terms of economics uh, at that level to this day. I think we see a lot more conversation uh, looking at pastors and theologians looking at business people and thinking about business and um, how to integrate that aspect of life. But economics per se, there are pockets, but it's it's not a strong influence. Yeah. So what are the, the results of this kind of paucity of really thinking about economics from a theological standpoint? How does it affect those of us in the church that we don't have this kind of fuller understanding of economics and what the how does that and how it applies to our faith? Mm, good question. Well, I think the issue is whether we are intentional about it or not, we are always being formed. Something is forming us as, as we go through our lives. And so if we are not intentional in our thinking about economics and faith, then if we're not intentional about it, then something is going to form us. And I think what we typically see in the church is that what forms us are the prevailing populisms in the culture. That's what tends to form who the church is. Um, so the question then becomes, how do we become more intentional about thinking about these issues and, and thinking more holistically about what that is? I don't have a strong answer uh, for, for how we do that. I think it becomes a movement of some kind. I think most movements begin with a handful of people slowly making disciples and building a snowball effect until you know things begin to change. But as you and I know, I think we've had this conversation before, building a snowball towards moderation. <laughs> the, the snowball is much easier to build if you've got an extreme, you know, overly confident sort of view of things and you can attract people that much more easily. But trying to build that that snowball towards something that is more holistic and more thoughtful is a bigger challenge. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I guess to some degree, it's very possible that that may always be a minority take on the world, that there's there are always going to be people that are on the extremes of things and that this moderating voice in the middle is, is the prophetic voice sometimes. Um, it isn't the one that everybody's embracing and you aren't exactly going to be received well or applauded uh, when you speak out and are, are critical. Uh, so it's possible that that's the case as well. Looking at the other side, um, on kind of from an evangelical standpoint, and this yeah. is not all evangelicals, but you kind of, but some, um, is that there's almost and you don't really question the economy at all. Right. Um, it's just kind of, as you said earlier, it's, you know, capitalism's great and there's no problems. Um, and so I think the question there is, what is the fear of being critical? Um, because it seems like there is a fear there that if you're, you criticize, then you're basically just throwing out all of uh -huh. capitalism and, you know, you, you know, let's bring in socialism, and that's not necessarily the case, or at least, right. you know, it doesn't have to be the case. Right, yeah. Well, that's a good question. I, I think the, the uh, <clears throat> I, uh, part of the thing is, I think that we are living globally through unprecedented change 
in, in how the world is configured. I, I think we're going through something possibly as big globally as the Reformation was in Europe uh, back in the 1500s mm -hmm. uh, that, that is, is that disruptive. There's a book, uh, I think his name Brent Waters, who wrote a book called Just Capitalism and where he's looking at capitalism, the issue of globalization. And I, I like his characterization of things that the nation states have been the dominant powers in the world in, in recent decades and recent lifetimes. But he sees in the 21st century us moving to market states, <laughs> hmm. uh, which become sort of global market regions that develop these interchanging uh, reciprocal relationships that begins to diminish the power of the nation states to some degree and tends to become more focused in these global international relationships, not globalism or, or one world government per se, but just something that spans simple nation states. And that that creates um, challenges. There's Anthony Giddens writing 25 years ago. He talks about on the one hand, globalization is consolidating the world, it's homogenizing it. All the economies are beginning to operate the same way because they all become interrelated. They have fairly close relationships in terms of uh, property laws, and how markets occur and that type of thing. Not identical, but, but becoming more closely the same. But at the same time that it's homogenizing the world in terms of the economy, it's also blowing up cultures all around the world. Because as people become more prosperous, as information begins to flow, you have the internet. Voices that have long been silenced and haven't been heard now have a voice. They can have their voice heard. And just the economy changing itself causes dislocations. Creating destructions destroys jobs in some places. It creates jobs in other places. And so that kind of sort of chaos that begins to develop, one, suddenly I'm, I'm pressed in by all these different cultures and different views that I never had to deal with before. And now my life economically has become more unstable and I'm more fearful of that creates anxiety within the culture. Mm -hmm. And so I think this idea then becomes to latch onto those things uh, in the past uh, that we idealize as having been the parts that we valued the most and somehow clinging to those and trying to pervert, uh, preserve those and, and keep those and to, to uh, re-energize them, those things that we saw in the past. And so I think what you see in this sort of reactionary sort of evangelical movement is people sensing without necessarily precisely understanding what it is that something is changing, that the ground is shifting under their feet and it's unnerving. And there's this wanting to cling to somebody who can assure them that everything's going to be fine and that they're going to take out all the people who threatened them. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think there's that, that part of the equation. And in another part of the world, another community of the world, they're ready to tear it all down. We'll just have globalization and we're ready to just open everything up and, you know, you know, case or sera, whatever's going to be is going to be. And that, that's what, and so then those are the conflicts and Anthony Giddens writing 25 years ago was suggesting that that is the new, fault line going forward in the 21st century is this sense of how globalization is disrupting the world and how we accommodate it. So I, I, I think the American expression of that with American evangelicalism and this, this real reactionary response, that's our particular outworking of that. But I think if you go to India, I think if you go to Eastern Europe, 
I think if you go to you know, places in Brazil, you go to various places, you'll see the same dynamic working in similar ways with their own cultural expression. So, yeah. Mm. So let's actually move to, to something somewhat related and that is the, the um, role of business um, and the church. And, you know, we don't talk as much or, you know, think as much about people who, you know, maybe they're the owner of a small business or uh, they work in finance or something. And, and this probably even brings up more to the, the larger question of work is that we don't, it doesn't seem to me that we really take our theology into work. Yeah. It seems like it's these days just kind of happens on Sunday. Yeah. But we don't really move into Monday. Right. Um, and I've seen that, especially in um, progressive circles. I don't know if that's happening as much in evangelical circles, but um, what's going on with that? That we don't <laughs> seem to, that work doesn't seem to matter as much to people or at least to the church. Right. Yeah. It's a good question, and I, I think this goes back again to the larger narrative of what, what, what are we here for? <laughs> what has God put us here for? What has God put us here to do? And I think there, the, the narrative that most of us live by, most of us have been taught, is incomplete and is, is not robust enough that it helps us incorporate our work life into that Christian sense of calling and vocation. If you go back and look at Genesis 1, it talks about basically human beings being set up as the vice regents over creation. They are God's basically uh, princes and princesses working to, to be able to create the world, to bring it more fully into existence. And at the end of the scripture in Revelation, we talk about all of the, the treasures of humanity from the various races and tribes are all brought into the new Jerusalem. They are incorporated into this new city, the, the city that's in now in the garden. Um, and so there's, there seems to be this sort of progression that humanity exists to bring the earth to its fullness, to bring humanity to its fullness, that there is a, a thing developing that God is doing in the world and that we are intimate and lead partners with God and bringing that reality about. That, to me, is the flow of what Scripture is about. But I don't think most people, if, if when I say this, I, I hear some people sort of give the, the intellectual nod, yeah, that, that's right. But in the warp and woof of their being, do they experience their life as that? Is that what it's, it's really about? I don't think that most people do. And I, I think there's two forces at work. I think that in the church, there, it goes back to the things we were talking about before. Things have changed a lot in the past couple of hundred years. And this issue of work and economics and wealth and how does it work into my life has become a much more complicated and different picture. And the church has not reflected adequately enough on um, what that means and what that what narrative uh, would help us interpret that. And the other side is that in economics, this idea that um, faith matters shouldn't be brought into the to the business place. The business operates by its own rules and has its own sense of, of logic and reason to it and uh trying to bring all these ethics and, and religion into it 
is a corrupting influence. And so therefore we try to, to, to teach people not to bring their faith into the workplace. So on the one hand, you have the culture saying you can't bring your faith to the workplace. And at church, we're just not going to talk about it. We're not going to talk about faith. And so what ends up happening is people end up having very compartmentalized lives. And church just becomes an adjunct to what they do in their real lives every day, which is at work. And in fact, one of the things that I find interesting is our church had some very difficult conversations over the past decade or so at various times. And almost every time we had families and individuals that decided to leave the church and go somewhere else. And, and in some of those, the written letters that they had, the theme was something to this effect. I come to church as my refuge, as my place to get away from all these controversies that everybody's talking about at work and culture and stuff like that. And I don't need to have those at church. I come to church to be renewed and to, to um, be made to feel whole again so I can go back out to the world. And so, and pastors hear that. Pastors know that they're, 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 that's some of what's going on in, you know, with people in their congregation. And so that's a difficult thing for pastors. I don't put this all on pastors, that it's you know, just them ignoring things. Uh, that what's the Woody Allen at the end of Annie Hall? He's talking to the psychiatrist. He says, doc, he says, you got to help me. I got this friend who thinks he's a chicken. And he says, well, have you told him that he's not a chicken? He says, no, because I need the eggs. Um, the, uh, <laughs> that's kind of how, to me, it seems like the church has developed in terms of dealing with the world of work and how it fits into our, our vocation is that we don't want to be confronted with difficult questions and pastors just want the church to go along smoothly. And so we're just not going to talk about this much. And, uh, and, and I think it's sad because I think there are a lot of people that though they have the initial resistance to some of these conversations. I think many of them have a di deep um, longing for meaning in terms of what's happening in their daily lives and they don't know how to connect and how to find it. And so trying to figure out how to have those difficult conversations, I think, in the life of the church is, is one of the, the challenges. Yeah. And it seems like the danger of compartmentalizing um, your faith is that it might wall you off from, well, ethical concerns. Right. You could end up doing some things that are unethical, but the church can't really speak to that anymore. And I may be wrong on this, but I don't think I am. But if I remember when Enron was a big thing um, in the early 2000s, I believe one of the, the head honchos was a devout Baptist. Yeah, and that's right. Was involved in all of this. And so you wonder, did he, was he even taught to kind of wall off the church from what yeah. was going on in the boardroom? Right. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it, it has implications for business, for culture, for ethics, things that happen in our culture and how our culture develops. It has implications for the life of the church because th then the church ends up being captive to whatever is happening in the culture because that's what's driving it. As I said before, you're always you're being formed by something, whether it's intentional or not. And so the people that are in those pews are being formed by what the culture is telling them. If the church is not intentionally creating a counter narrative that um, that gives alternate meaning to their to their life, so yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, 
I want to kind of change a, a, a little bit to something you brought up earlier, and that is critical race theory. Yeah. Um, because that's obviously the topic we're all talking about. Um, <laughs> sometimes I wish we weren't talking about it. But, but, but are we talking about it? Well, and, that and that's, the, that's the important thing, because, <laughs> you know, I don't necessarily understand everything about it. And I, I think that there are some actual just criticisms of critical race theory but oh yeah yeah when people talk about it i hear it and i keep thinking do you even understand what this is all about and exactly. for some reason it's just even just anything that you talk about concerning race is just yep. critical race theory and so right you know what is kind of going on in our culture that we're just talking there just seems to be a lot of of anxiousness about right you know these issues and and so critical race theory just becomes this kind of word that we use and toss around it's the boogeyman yeah that, that's exactly. that, that's what it is it, it it is a it is a label a concept on which you can throw all your anxieties and all your your frustrations and anger at and so the, my my take is is that what particularly the white folks that um, are sensitive toward the idea that racial prejudice still exists and that, that uh, there are systemic issues uh, involved in how uh, race plays out in our culture, that is threatening to them. And so, and they, they see that, and so that is with every civil rights movement that's occurred over the past hundred years, the, the go-to thing is, well, that's Marxism. That's communism, you know, th this idea that there's systemic issues. And so critical race theory is, is Marxism. And then what we do is we throw anything that talks about systemic issues in terms of race into critical race theory, that, that all that is critical race theory. So racism is only what an individual um, uh, believes and then acts on as an individual. That's all racism is. And so anything you want to say beyond that is this Marxist critical racism theory. So they, they, uh, it is a way to deflect and to, to avoid having to think about and be, have a more nuanced view of American history and American, present American culture. And it's a reactionary response uh, there. And, and like you said, yeah, there's, as I said earlier, critical race theory is a, is a verb, not a noun. It is a, it's a lens through which to do it. And depending on who's got the lens, you're going to see a little bit different things with, with different, and some of them are wrong. Some, you know, some of it's not substantiated. It's not valid. The lens itself is not necessarily the problem, but certain theorists and so on, there's, but that's, that's the way academia has always worked is that people take various lenses. They, they propose their views, then they debate them and they, they argue about them. And they, they try to, to, to find truth. So the idea that critical, and most of these people who are wanting to ban critical race theory have no clue what critical race theory is. It's a fairly narrow, almost esoteric section of analysis of the law and how you know, the law works to sometimes systemically deprive people of, of their status in society. Um, but yeah, it, it, has, it has gone beyond something that's, when people are talking about critical race theory, they aren't talking about critical race theory. <laughs> it's a boogeyman, yeah. So what is the, what, what's behind all of the, the anxiety? You know, I, 
because I don't want it, I guess for me, I, I don't, you know, as, as an African-American, I don't want to just easily say, well, you're just all racist, because I think that that shuts down the discussion. I don't, and I think right. that's too simplistic. Right. But there is something there that wants to just make it just individual actions. But if it were just individual actions, then you would just deal with a few people and that's it. But yeah there wouldn't have been need for a civil rights movement or any of all the laws that were passed and all that. So exactly right. What's the anxiety behind all of this? Yeah. Well, I, I was having this conversation a couple of times recently at looking back at my own personal experience and, and a couple generations in my life. So my dad is a world war II veteran and uh, he, he was in the last month of world war II, but he was in the army for a couple of years. And because of that, he was eligible for the GI Bill, mm-hmm. and that GI Bill meant the housing, uh, the you know, the housing loans, guaranteed loans for veterans, and then also the college tuition. Uh, uh, you could get college tuition because you were a veteran. And so, when he came out of the army, he went into college, and he managed to go to, to college. He got uh, you know tuition paid, and he bought several houses over those early years as they moved around and moved up to bigger houses, and always had. Uh, VHA backed loans uh, at, at discounted rates in order to be able to buy those houses. And then eventually he became a professor. He got a, went on to get his PhD, became a chemist, and he was a professor for 10 years, which happened to be at the time, overlapped the time that I went to college. And because he was a professor, I got my college tuition free because mm-hmm. I was the son of, of one of the professors there. And then that has led on to the life that I've had and the decisions that, that I have made. Now, go back to John Doe, who is a black man, who's the same age as my father, who served in World War II, and he comes out, and theoretically, he has the same GI Bill. He can go to college and have his college paid for, and he can get the VHA loan, except that all throughout the United States, most black folks are restricted to certain neighborhoods, either implicitly or legally, and the VHA won't loan to houses that are in those neighborhoods because they're not considered quality housing. So the housing that you can participate in, you really can't take advantage of those VHA loans. College and the South, if you're a black person, you couldn't go to any of the state universities. And the black schools that were there tended to be focused more on religion, on teaching, on services, and that was about it. And not necessarily always the best quality in terms of instructors, that type of thing. There were some, but, but not necessarily. And then with the influx of people coming out after World War II, if you're going to have an influx of students, you have to put those students somewhere. And you are living in the racially segregated South where, you know, there's only so so much housing available. If you have an influx of students, where do you even put them if you did bring them to college? In the North, which is technically had Black students, and they did in in some colleges, but there was a a, uh, quota. You could only have up to a certain number of people that were black people, so because that would deprive the white folks of, of the positions at those schools as well. So your ability to get that education and to get build up your wealth by buying a house, uh, and this is just one example of things that occurred over the 20th century. If you, if a guy my age, your age, your parents, and therefore the circumstances that now shape your life were shaped by those events, and mine were shaped by my events. Did I do anything wrong? Did I do something terrible? Was I racist in order to, that what I did to get right?
time chatting with Michael, and I hope you were able to learn a thing or two. Uh, Before we sign off on this episode, I just wanted to share a few things. The first is that we have a new email address. If you have a question or a comment, and even if you just want to say hello, and I would love that, uh, you can send it to reverendpodcast at gmail.com. That's reverendpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. You can uh, also uh, consider subscribing to the show on your favorite podcast platform. Um, I've named those platforms before. There are also a whole bunch of others that I'm not even aware of, but um, whichever one that you listen to, consider subscribing. Also, consider um, leaving a rating or review um, on your podcast platform, especially on Apple Podcasts uh, slash iTunes. Um, Doing that makes it a lot easier for others to find this podcast. And um, right now, I think I have about five um, reviews. I would love if I had 10 in the next month or so. Um, so if you are listening to this podcast, um, give a, a, a five-star rating. That would be incredibly helpful for me. If you want to check out more, learn a little bit more about uh, me, about the podcast, um, listen to some past episodes, uh, don't forget to go to our website at enroutepodcast.org. That is it for this episode of Enroute a journey on uh, on religion and modern life. I am Dennis Sanders, your host. Take care and Godspeed. Mm-hmm.